Hey, you are listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Seven Mile Road. We are a gospel-centered church just north of Boston, Mass. To learn more about who we are and what we are going for together, just go to sevenmilemelrose.com. So uh, last week, Pastor Justin talked about some comparison sites. If you remember that, if you missed it, you're going to hit that on the podcast as well and, and catch up at least on the intro, all right, and, and hear some of what he talked about. I'm going to delve into a little bit of comparison as well and talk about comparison shopping. So I, I don't know if any of you are crazy about price checking and looking across the internet for different prices and keeping up with that. One thing that usually is on my mind is travel. So I'm, I'm constantly looking at different travel sites, different pricing, different options. And an interesting price comparison that you may not have looked at, but uh, has been on my mind, is Hawaii. Is, any, is Hawaii on anyone's mind here in January, here in Boston area, right? So Hawaii is often uh, a favorite destination, as you might guess. And it's been really interesting over the last couple of years to watch how travel to Hawaii has worked. Right? There's been a couple of things going on over the last couple of years I think you're aware of, and it's changed the dynamics of this travel. People who are thinking about when is that once-in-a-lifetime trip that I'm going to make? How far away from my home that I've been quarantined in can I go? Hawaii sounds pretty far. These are the types of ideas that are coming on. And what we've seen is that really the cost of flights to Hawaii has changed quite a bit over this time. It used to be this incredibly expensive high-end trip. And then it's changed at times as the demand started to subside a little bit. People weren't traveling that far for a period of time, and especially 2020 at the start. We saw the prices begin to come down and down and down. And they were reaching kind of historic lows at a point in 2020. Then word got out, hey, go outside, hang out in really beautiful places that aren't like your living room. And it became really exciting to try and travel to Hawaii. And slowly but surely, those prices started trickling back up. Now, the good news is, I checked this morning, you can still get a round-trip flight from Boston to Honolulu in the month of February for under $500, which isn't bad. So prices aren't that crazy yet. But you see quite a few changes in this price. And it comes down to the cost and, and price. And so I want to talk about those terms a little bit so we think about them. We use them kind of interchangeably in our speech, but they mean slightly different things, right? So when you think about cost, cost relates to... Now, who's looking up Hawaii on your phone already? Has anyone already? Okay, wait, save that, okay? Uh, cost is about the expenses incurred for creating a product or service, right? So we think about flights. There's cost involved. There's all the employee costs to make a flight happen, people on the plane, people on the ground, etc. There's this plane that they amortize for multiple years to pay off the actual cost of getting the plane. And then there's this all-important fuel charge that gets into your uh, air price as well. There's a bunch of taxes and fees that they usually don't tell you about to the end that are part of that price as well. All of that fit, fits into what we technically call cost, right? The company had to spend so much money to make this flight available to you as a consumer, someone who could fly on it. So that cost, in a certain sense, is fairly fixed. They had the expenses that they had. They can't like, act like fuel prices are different. They can't act like the employee costs aren't what they are. The plane costs what it costs. So there's a sense in which they're fixed. Now, companies who want to you know, be, be open for more than a day or two, they have to put in some profit into there as well. So they build in additional profit that they need to make above what the actual cost of the goods are in the product. But then it comes down to an all-important, almost mystical equation to figure out 
what will someone pay for that? Now, the company is interested in you paying as much as possible for this product, right? That's in their best interest. But we as consumers, we're very fickle. There's this funny line or elasticity that comes into our psyche of what we'll actually put down our credit card for and pay. And that all-important equation becomes price. What you and what the people in general will pay for this good or this service. And so companies spend their time trying to drive down the cost as much as they can so that they can extend as much profit because people are only going to pay so much. That's as much as they're going to put into this. So a trip to Hawaii, I don't know what the price elasticity is, but there's a point at which very few people are going to pay. If that gets up to $3,000, $4,000, you're probably not going to put down that money. So they want to find just that happy spot for the price to be where people will spend as much as possible and they'll be able to get as much profit as possible, but also have a wide volume of people who are willing to extend that, that, uh, that amount of price for it. So when we think around something like the cost of discipleship, you might be wondering, is this uh, some kind of monetary speech that we're about to get into? I want to assure you, no. In this case, what we're looking at specifically is what is required or what is incurred to get the desired outcome in discipleship. And we think of this as cost. But we can relate to it really carefully and talk about price. A price in discipleship would be how much effort how much are we likely to put into reaching these desired outcomes? There's some fixedness to the cost of discipleship. It is what it is. It's required to get the outcome. But the question that we'll have ourselves by the end of our time together is asking, are you willing to put out the effort, the right decisions, and, and the changes to your life to meet the discipleship demands that you face? So as we look at that, I want to just give two definitions when I talk about discipleship. So the first one is about salvation. So when you think about what salvation is, salvation means the act whereby God himself gives to humanity because of his own character and choosing, so there's no external restraints. God does this because God wants to, and he rescues from eternal death and a, and a reconciling of warring enmity with God. So pretty technical definition. We can unpack that a lot here. But basically, God chooses to give to us salvation on his own accord, which involves us being rescued. That's why we use the word saved to kind of talk about that. You're rescued from death, and you're reconciled instead of having a gap or a distance between you and God and, and having friction and, and um, unhappiness between you and God. All that's dealt with in salvation. And so what's required for us is when as humans we believe that Jesus' life and death is counted as a substitute for our own life. That's what we have to do in that equation. We're believing that there's a substitution that takes place and that Jesus' life and death can be counted on our behalf. And because of that, we can get this salvation. It's a gift, in essence, for us. When I talk about discipleship, then, to contrast that, discipleship really points to a master-follower relationship of Jesus and us. This is the Christian experience and all that a life of following Jesus entails. So we can think of this as really sanctification in many aspects. So there's an initial belief we have in Jesus, and there's an ongoing day-to-day -day path that we follow to become more like Jesus and to deny and repent of more sin that's present in our life.
So now, if a lot of those terms are flying over the top of you, that's totally fine. We're going to get ourselves back in the text here very quickly, and you'll be able to follow along. But I want to set at the outset that when I say some of the comments that I'm going to make today about following Jesus, I'm making a distinction between that initial following of Jesus when we come to be saved and what it looks like to have an ongoing followership of Jesus in our lives and becoming more like him in sanctification. So as we jump into our text and understand what our big idea is for today, I want to make sure that we get one key thought across, and that's that following Jesus requires a total life commitment, but pales in comparison to the benefits. Following Jesus requires a total life commitment. In some ways, we could contrast the two aspects of this. We could talk about that salvation experience as understanding Jesus as our Savior. He saves you. He's the one doing that action. And when we talk about sanctification, we're recognizing what's true, that Jesus is our Lord, our master. He's in charge of our lives. And this is what it calls us to. So when we think about following Jesus, we have to see that our entire life from beginning to end is called under that lordship of Christ. And that commitment that we're called to do is actually quite a, quite a bit uh, less than the level of benefits that we're receiving. They actually pale in comparison to what he gives to us. So let's explain that a little bit more. I want to talk about kind of three aspects of what discipleship is today. And these come right out of uh, the, the text that we'll look at. The first is we're going to talk about the cost explained. What does it actually uh, require? What's, what's it cost us in verse 23? Then we'll talk a little bit about examining that because it keeps the alliteration okay, but really it's kind of a cost-benefit analysis in verses 24 and 27. So why is this worth expending effort on being discipled by Jesus? And then lastly, at the end of the chapter that we just read, it uh, talks really about kind of some examples, three people who have gone through this or would be disciples and what their experiences is as they kind of illustrate about the discipleship that Jesus has called us to. So let's jump into the text on that first one and talk about the cost explained. Jesus began explaining to his disciples about discipleship. Makes sense. They're disciples. They should understand what's going on here. But he has a broader audience in mind. He's explaining that for all the later disciples who would come and follow, both in the direct context there in that time period, as well as all of us today who would continue to have the opportunity to follow Jesus. Uh, the discipleship is illustrated here, uh, kind of encapsulated in those words in verse 23. Uh, if anyone would come after me. When he talks about coming after me, he's really defining this idea of discipleship. And he gives a threefold description of what it, what it looks like. And to be honest, this kind of discipleship is quite a bit different than anyone else. No one would have the same call on our lives. They wouldn't be valid for anyone to ask this of you except for Jesus. So he has a pretty high bar of what the cost is here. But let's hear what he asks from us as we follow him. First of all, he says, we must deny ourselves. He says, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself. In the words of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, a German theologian and uh, an activist in many ways in Germany during the Nazi regime, who was a a great Christian pastor, said that to to deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self to see only him who goes before and no more the road which is hard for us, right? You see that change of focus you're in. I don't know if you've been on a a great hike going up uh, maybe a a cliff or a vista to get to the cliff so you can uh, look at it. And you start on the road and it's very easy to feel like there's no reason to keep going on this. Usually most exciting trails are very boring at the beginning. You're under tree cover, 
There's usually not a whole lot to see. Usually there's way more people at the bottom than there are at the top. And you kind of work your way on that path and you're kind of going, is this going to be worth it? I don't, I don't know. Maybe this is a good idea. If you focus on one foot in front of the other and the pain and this is hot or cold and I don't like it, there's very much a sense in which you won't continue. But as you understand what your goal is, who you're going to see, there's a sense in which you're raised in your thought. So this denial of oneself is changing your perspective away from my feet hurt, I'm stuck in this difficult situation, and instead looking at Christ. It changes what we see. So this change uh, is compelling. You think about when you first became a believer. This is really the moment that had to be clear to you as you first trusted in Christ. You had an understanding of who Jesus is, and at some point you said, I want Jesus more than anything else. Maybe you didn't even know what to contrast him with. Maybe you didn't know what were the concerns, all the things that lay ahead. Maybe you were saved at an early age. You didn't know all the troubles and things of life. And you said, no, but I want Jesus. I don't, I don't really know anything about anything else. I want him. Maybe you were later in life and you came to Jesus and you believed him. It was probably a more conscious decision. You were saying, look, this is how I was living. This is what I was doing, but I'm compelled to follow Jesus. I'm believing his words, and so I turned to him. And there's a sense in which in that moment, that denial is so visceral. You're probably not articulating, I'm repenting, I'm believing, I'm coming to faith, and this is what this means. It says, no, I'm following Jesus. I believe him. i got to turn away from what I was doing and follow him. We see those changes. They come out naturally in what we're doing. But as we continue on in our lives, we start to realize that this is an ongoing part of the Christian walk. As we continue to follow Jesus, there's a need to turn away from things that we would rather do, things that may be enticing, calling us as sirens in the night, to turn towards them, and instead we have to remind ourselves that we're following Jesus. This is what he's called us to. Our own motivations at times can be suspect. Our own desires can't always be trusted. We have to reset and turn toward who Jesus is and what he means for us. There's no one else that we can be trusting in, and especially not ourselves. So now, throughout our time together, I'm gonna to talk about maybe a few examples of what discipleship decisions might look like. When I, when I do that, I want you to be considering what it might look like in your own life, as there's probably more specific examples that'll mean, have meaning for you. But think about what denial means in our lives, right? There's many aspects of our life that uh, we may think of as kind of off limits from following Jesus. You might be following Jesus in sort of 90% of your life, thinking, yes, I'm making conscious decisions about each of these areas, and this is where Christ is. But that other 10%, maybe we ignore it. Maybe we question where Christ fits into those areas. And we think, you know, this is okay. I'm doing obedience. I'm following Jesus in these areas. But there's this other area where I, I don't really correlate the two. Maybe it's uh, something that we're, we're hiding. Maybe it's something with our finances. Maybe it's in a relationship that we know is at odds with what Jesus' call is in our life. Whatever that other thing is in our life, we're tempted to keep that portion of our life hidden away or at least not offered up to Jesus' lordship in our life. But what, what that means is this area of our life prevents us from focusing on, on Jesus. And instead, we focus on ourselves and the difficulty of letting go of it. And that's why Jesus calls all who would be his disciples to first deny themselves. But then secondly, as the, as the text takes us to that next phrase, not only uh, let him deny himself, but also take up his cross daily. So when Christ calls a disciple, as Bonhoeffer would put so clearly, when Christ calls a disciple, he bids them come and die. 
These are the words that Jesus has here that we can't really shy away from. They're right here in the text. We can read them as Bible language and not be as uh, starkly uh, noticed because we're used to reading about the cross in the Bible. But take note. He says, take up his cross daily. This really means kind of a death march of crucifixion, right? We know the passion story well. Jesus bore his cross for a portion of the path to Golgotha before Simon of Cyrene was brought on to join him in carrying it. And the cross has one purpose to it. In the meaning of the Roman world in which Jesus and the 12 disciples were a part of, the cross meant death. It meant nothing else. So the death and, su- death and suffering is what is called of every disciple as he abandons the attachments of this world. So think about that. Jesus says, hey, come after me. You'll suffer and you'll, you'll die. Those are his words. That's what he's putting at us. It's shocking. We can't miss what he's saying. Now, what does this entail? This, first of all, it's going to mean always a detachment or an abandonment of attachment from things that are in the world. So whether uh, it's similar to the 12 disciples, where we might be called to move away from home, move away from a job, and come and follow what Jesus called us to. Or maybe it's like Martin Luther, who left what he had known, the safety and the uh, security of the monastery, and moved away from that and followed after what it meant to follow Christ. These are very uh, poignant examples where there was a big change in someone's life. But the reality is, is that as we are following Jesus, he calls us away from all kinds of attachments of this world that we may know. All these things that we would otherwise be following, all these other things that we would otherwise love and enjoy in the world, Jesus calls us from those to follow him. So we have to see that in that there is a sense of death, there is a sense of suffering, there is a sense of lacking or missing out of something. But that is what Jesus calls us to. And in each of these, we're, we're called to bear that. We're called to feel that, to feel the weight, the change. And what's interesting is that we don't pick this cross. It's a cross that Jesus gives to each of us what we can bear. So it doesn't mean that all of us will experience martyrdom, as that's not something that all of us have the capacity to bear under and hold the faith. But it could mean some believers face that. In others, it could be extreme physical suffering. In other ways, it could be loss of reputation. It could be a feeling of shame. It could be loss of other opportunities and things that we would otherwise be enjoying receiving. The point is, is there is a loss. There is a cost that comes with following Jesus. And when each of us are placed in that moment, we don't know what God will call from us. We're having to show ourselves as true disciples to turn away from that cost and instead point our focus to Jesus, embracing what he's called us to. And that's why his last statement, after denying himself, taking up your cross, is to then follow Jesus. This final aspect of discipleship is simply that, following Jesus. Lest we lose sight of the master in our self-denial and cross-bearing, he reiterates it with these simple words, follow me. So there's a lot packed in those two words, right? Just like there's a lot packed in the words like remote learning, right? There's a lot in gig worker, and metaverse, although I don't know what those are exactly, but there's a lot in simple words. Follow me means so much. You'll find that phrase throughout the gospel stories, different writers at different times bringing that forward, and there's so much put behind such small words. Being called to follow Jesus means we're not on this path alone is an important realization. It is Jesus who we go behind it is he who leads us. 
So we bear our cross, we're denying in the same way like our master has denied himself and bore a cross, but he goes before us. In, this, in, a, in a sense, um, it, it's right that we're not left alone in carrying this. But we do hear <clears throat> heavy words of what this path will be like. And it's not an ease of travel. It's not that there are, un, un, are not unmarked obstacles along the way. But as we follow Jesus, we're reminded that this is the right path. This is where he's gone and where he leads us to. And so as we identify with him and see similarities in the hardships and pain at times in our own lives of following him, we can be reminded that we fit and look like and match with what our master is doing. We see this in the the words of Paul as he talks about sharing in Jesus' suffering and seeing that as a piece of what we're called to do as disciples. So now you hear all this and you may be thinking, all right, this isn't like exactly a great marketing speech for following Jesus. It sounds like there's some really hard aspects to this. Why would I want to do this? So maybe you're here today and you're saying, I'm not really a follower of Jesus. And to be honest, Tim, you're not selling me on it today at all. I I hear you on that. Maybe you are someone who's already following Jesus and you're having questions and doubts in your own mind saying, I don't know, is this really worth it? This is a lot of pain, a lot harder than maybe I thought it was at the beginning. And you might be wrestling with what it means to continue. Jesus anticipates this in this next section of these verses. So let's hear what Jesus says on why this cost is worth it and examine that in verses 24 through 27. Now, the function of these verses, more or less, is to do kind of a side-by-side comparison of kind of pros and cons of following Jesus. So we can think of this in like more of a business-oriented context as kind of a cost-benefit analysis or a pros and cons list, if you prefer. And what we mean is we take the idea of the cost of discipleship and you put it on one side, okay, what's the benefit for that? What are the pros? What's it going to cost me? And then sort of on the other side, you're figuring out, okay, well, what's, what's the negative side of this? And put those kind of side by side in comparison. Now, we see that this is actually happening in the text. If you look in your, in your, uh, your Bible there in verse 24, uh, 25, and 26, you see each of the verses start with the word for. And so they're lined up in parallel. They're all there for explanation to help us understand exactly why would I do the things that Jesus said in the verse before? Well, here's a threefold explanation of why you would do that. And so that's why he lays this out for us. So the first answer of why he is calling us to do this is uh, so that losing can be saving in verse 24. Now, let's hear what that means, because that doesn't make a lot of sense on its own if I say that. But losing can be saving, in verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So as he anticipates some questions around following Jesus, and is it really worth it, he brings to the forefront this question of risk. There's risks of following Jesus. And as you think about that, like I don't want to lose my life for following someone or something that's very dangerous. That, that's scary. That's intense. You can think about that, especially in Jesus' day and around the world. That can be a real cost, even today, of following Jesus. Do we have any risk-averse people in the room? It's okay. You can really raise your hand. There's nothing bad going to happen to you. Okay. All right. Just wanted to let you know there's some safety in being risk-averse. Um, you know, that's where I would categorize myself. I don't go out of my way to have this really adventurous time. No, it's okay. I'll take the longer way that's safer. I'll avoid the, the perils that seem to come with the fun adventure. Um, that's, that's where I find myself. Jesus seems to be saying, look, I understand that desire and where you're coming from to avoid the risk, but some things are worth the effort. 
Some things are worth the risk. Some things are worth that cost. And what he says is if you're actually trying to protect your life as it is without taking the risk of following Jesus, then you're actually going to lose your life. So even though you had the best intentions of saving your life, it's actually the riskier thing not to follow Jesus and put your life on the line. Now, it perhaps might not cost you your physical life, but your eternal life is his point of what he's saying. So Jesus puts in the benefit column, actually losing your life, that's a good thing, and taking up your cross because it'll result in a benefit of saving your life. So it's good to lose your life physically if you can save your life eternally. Uh, a missionary martyr to the Alka Indians in Ecuador named Jim Elliott summarized this phrase in a really succinct way that goes well. Uh, he wrote it in his journal saying, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Really grasping the enormity of this equation. This idea that giving something up that you couldn't hold on to or save yourself isn't a bad decision to gain something from someone else, a gift that God will give us of eternal life that you could never have achieved on your own anyways. That equation adds up. It makes sense to be willing to sacrifice our life, to give God ownership of it, because that's going to be the safer place for us to be, and there's eternal gain on the line. So losing the control of one's life and putting it under the lordship of Jesus actually preserves or saves one's life. In verse 25, he puts another cost-benefit out here, really between the world and your soul. So the terms in this, this uh, equation are put very carefully to us. Jesus is saying, look, I'm sure some of you are being very practical and thinking about this in monetary terms. Some are saying, dollars and cents-wise, it sounds like following Jesus is going to cost me some good money. It sounds like maybe there's a nebulous cost. I don't know how much this is actually going to run me. But that figure costs me more than I probably want to pay, and I could make better profit with not following Jesus, holding something back, maybe acting differently in the world instead of feeling like I have to follow Jesus and maybe be more ethical, maybe change the way I do things. I'm not interested in that. Jesus answers that to say, well, yeah, let's talk about profit. So Jesus pushes this immediately into extremes. He says, if your profit number that you're looking at, that you could go by not following me, if, if we could just push that out a little further than you're probably imagining. Let's say you could profit the entire world. So take all the world's wealth, add it together, and you could somehow, by not following me, achieve the entire world and its, its value. That cumulative wealth put together. If you gain that entire world, would it be worth it to lose and forfeit yourself, or specifically your own soul. So he puts those in the balance. All the money of the world versus your own soul. And he's that Faustian equation that we can read about in literature as well, is put before us and says, well, that's a terrible idea. Even, I don't even know what all the wealth in the world would be. That sounds ridiculous. That sounds really good, but there's a really short timeline on that wealth. And what could I achieve with it? I mean, what am I aiming for? Because there's something you're doing with wealth, right? You're trying to be more secure. You're trying to be more powerful. You're trying to feed more comforts. There's something underlying the use of wealth that you're trying to achieve. And maybe the wealth can reach that for you in a limited capacity for a limited duration. But Jesus' point is that profit that's far bigger than you could ever hope to have, all the wealth in the world, would fail because you would lose your own self. 
Now, whether that's not being true to ourselves and completely undoing our, our integrity of who we are, or as I think this is indicating, we'd lose our own soul. Meaning, yes, you had all the riches in the world in this lifetime, but as you died, your soul would be lost. Would it be worth it in those dollars and cents values is what Jesus is saying. And he says in those comparison, you would still lose. So if in wealth and cost, if our value is really about our own happiness, then you say, I'll be happier with wealth. But then you aren't understanding that this happiness is for a longer duration in following Jesus. If your value is safety and comfort that you can achieve with money, then you aren't comprehending that the inability to actually secure safety on your own, that you're actually unable to secure safety on your own and are devaluing your eternal safety and comfort for these more immediate returns. And if your value is power and prestige given from riches, then Jesus covers this in the next verse as he'll talk about the duration that's limited for us and the questions of who do you really need honor from and who can you afford, afford to be ashamed of? So let's go into that in verse 26 as he talks about shame and glory in his evaluation. In verse 26, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me, Jesus, and of my words, of that person, the Son of Man, which is a, another title for Jesus, will be ashamed of that person when he comes into his glory and the glory of the Father and of the angels. So Jesus puts shame and glory into this cost-benefit analysis. He says you can turn away from Jesus in shame in order to obtain current earthly honor. But look around in the news and on Twitter, and the more Jesus bashing, the more honor that seems to be available for those folks. But Jesus says that in the future time, Jesus will be ashamed of that person who doesn't show the loyalty and the fidelity of following him. So if we seek the glory of Jesus and the honor of him, then the eternal future, then our eternal future is not marked by shame, but glory with the Father. And that's what's in play here. So we face this dilemma many times in our lives where we think, who can we afford to shame, right? As you come to age and you become a, a teenager, a young adult, you're often put with these opportunities, right, to decide, well, do I please my, my parents in this activity or do I make it well with my friends and other contacts that I have in life? And that's kind of one of the first places where you start to fill that pool of dilemma, like who do I need to be loyal to? Some point later in life, we may look at that equation differently than we do in the immediacy of our youth. And we think, actually, my parents are around for a long time and they are still connected to me. And maybe I think differently about that relationship. Or the same way as we grow older and we find ourselves in uh, academics or in, in work environments, there's this pull. Who's going to love me more? Is my boss going to love me more for spending more time and effort on this project? Or will my family love me more if I'm able to wrap this up and spend some time with them here at the end? And we make these debates and dilemmas in our mind all the time. Think, who should I honor? Who matters more in this equation? Who will still be with me? And that's the same argument that Jesus is making here to have an understanding. Look, there's going to be times of shame and dishonor in this world in following Jesus. Don't miss it. He's put that at the, at the front, um, not like a, a pharmaceutical commercial with the little uh, add-ins at the end. He's put this up front to tell you, look, this is what discipleship is. And as he says that, he says, recognize this. Shame hurt now but you will stand before the Father and Jesus and even the angels who are hanging around there with Jesus to be able to see the glory that you receive from following me. So the question is, who do we honor and who do we shame? 
And as we think about what this comes into context like, we get to the very end of this chapter uh, that I read just briefly at the end, and just very quickly look at three examples that Jesus gives us of what this could look like or what this could feel like. These are three would-be disciples who came to Jesus. So the first one in verses 57 and 58 It says, and they were going along on the road, and someone said to him, I'll follow you and go wherever you go. Pretty exuberant, happy fellow who seems to want to just up and follow Jesus. Jesus' words is a little bit more of a downer, but a little bit more truer to him. He says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. His point is, is, look, you want to follow me? That's interesting that you're volunteering and ready to go this all on your own. I haven't even called you, but you're, you're running to this place. Understand this, that there's a cost to comfort as you follow me. So as we see what he's saying, he's saying, look, even some of the creation has ways that they're cared for. But as you follow Jesus, there's no promise of comfort. There's no uh, guaranteed home or uh, of real estate or even a waterbed with a wonderful duvet. Nothing like that is promised to us in our comfort of following Jesus. But he says to this disciple, he's shown that that mattered more to him than following Jesus. The second one in verses 59 through 60, as we read, Jesus actually calls this man. He says to him, can you imagine this? Follow me. But he says to him, Lord, let me first go back and bury my father. Now, these words hit us very sharply in our our life. We can imagine the enormity of this sad moment in this guy's life. And we can't, you know, immediately run onto this equation and totally... uh, throw him under the bus and sort of say, like, look at, look at what he's done here. This is a terrible guy. It's a very normal, reasonable request that he's making. And in fact, this request to bury his father is very fitting culturally as a significant part of what he's asked to do as a, a good Jewish male in his world. But Jesus still refuses this ask of responsibility to his family. So what Jesus means is he says in these words, leave the dead to bury their own dead. He could mean a couple different things, right? He could be saying, there's other people who will take care of this. He could be making kind of rhetorical absurdity, saying, you know, I'll leave you to dead people. Dead people can't really do anything, so that's not, you know, really what he's saying, but for rhetorical effect, that's what he's putting out there. Or he could be saying, you know, the spiritually dead, those who don't have these important kingdom matters to be caring for, perhaps they're the ones who should deal for this issue. Regardless of his exact intention in this kind of ambiguous phrasing, His point is is that there are things more important than even family obligations. There's significant things that Jesus is is asking for this man to do, to come and join him in carrying forward the proclamation of the kingdom. And it's so important that even a cultural family obligation should be set aside while prioritizing Jesus. Now, I got to be honest, that's a pretty good excuse this guy put out there, right? We can see that. But if Jesus says that doesn't measure up, You have to think about all the lame reasons we come up with for not wanting to follow Jesus and do the things that he's asked us to do. They typically are going to pale in comparison for the reasons that we come up with for not doing what Jesus has asked us to do. So we go then finally to verses 61 and 62, this third example. And this third man says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, again, this strikes us as, as hard to believe that Jesus would somehow stop this, this, this guy from going back and saying goodbye to his parents, giving them a kiss goodbye and, and, and moving on. This passage quickly parallels uh, an exact passage from 1 Kings chapter 19 of the story of Elijah and Elisha. And in that story, Elisha is out using a plow 
He's out there with some oxen. He's plowing his field. And Elijah comes and calls him for service as another prophet. Lays his cloak on him, says, come follow me, more or less. And Elisha says, can I go back to my family and tell them goodbye? And Elijah says, sure, he lets him go. So Elisha goes back to his family. He kills the oxen that he was, he was plowing with, assumedly, and he makes a big feast. And he cooks up the, boils it. I don't know if that's good, good boiled oxen or not, but he boils the oxen. And he feeds his whole family. They have a whole farewell party. And then Elisha comes and he joins Elijah and they go on their merry way. Jesus is saying here, probably with very much the story in mind, as he mentions a plow in his response exactly, right? And he says, look, what I'm doing, what I'm calling you to is so much more important than what even Elijah was calling Elisha to. As you follow Jesus, we don't even have time for you to have a quick party to get goodbye. There is significant work that I'm calling you to. So he says, when you put your hand to the plow, you can't look back. Using that plow illustration, I, I've never plowed. I've got to give a full disclosure there. But I have chalked a baseball line before, and that's my best comparison. So if you have this little cart with chalk in it, and you push it up the line, there's a sense in which you have to have your, your eye out in the front. And if you chalk the field, if you look anywhere else, if you get distracted and turn around, that line's going every which way, and everything's going to be fair. So when you're doing that, you need to pay attention to where you're going. You keep your eyes, your focus ahead. You put your hand to the plow and you know, hey, this is what I'm doing. So for five minutes, I'm, I'm lining the field. I'm not gonna talk to my friends. I'm not gonna play around. I gotta do this one job. That's what Jesus calls us to in discipleship, to see once we've put our hands to it, it's time to get this job done. We move ahead. There's no time for any delays. Jesus has called us to follow him. No families, no rituals, no work, Nothing else can keep us from doing what God has called us to do. So in the application, what are three areas quickly that we can look at and we can flesh these out in gospel community times if your, your group is going through the, the sermon track on that? Areas where we can think about what it means to follow Jesus. One of those is in values and comforts. These are about our desires, what we want. This is a place where we can test what it means to follow Jesus. What are we wanting? What are we seeking? What do we see as of highest value to us? As we look into those areas, are we across the board setting what Christ has called us to at the top, or do we put other things in its place? Secondly, in our priorities and schedules, you've heard it before, they definitely show where our heart lies. The way that we spend our time, what we cancel and what we overbook shows what we value. What would Jesus think of our use of our time are we following him and expending our effort to show that we put him at the front of our lives? And then lastly, what do we grasp for? Relationships, money, the things that we really hold on to. If we have to pry your hand free to give to someone in need, if we have to push you to get to know someone else and care for them and love them, that shows that perhaps our love and followership of Jesus is lacking. These are identifiers, ways that we can think about where we show our true devotion and discipleship for Jesus.